Let's pray. Our Father God, we come before you and ask that you would open our hearts to hear your glorious word, that your promise, you would be faithful to your promise, that the word of the Lord will not return void, that the seeds will be planted and they would bear fruit. We ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Chapter 4, our text today will be starting in verse 35, and we'll work our way through the end of the chapter. We're dealing here today with a dramatic event. Had you been present, had I been present that day, no, no doubt such a scene would have left a long-lasting effect upon us. In fact, I think there's evidence in the text, at least implicitly, that it made a very dramatic impact on the disciples, and maybe particularly Peter. But here, we recorded for us the, the episode of a terrible storm that comes suddenly upon the disciples and Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. And the text stands, in a sense, upon three consecutive rebukes. We find three rebukes, and I'll organize a sermon along those three rebukes, and But I think, and I'm I'm persuaded as I've studied this this week, that in all three of the rebukes, there's a lesson for us. In all three of the rebukes, there's something of of an instructive nature to us. Perhaps it's a, a rebuke in kind. Perhaps it's an insight into something about our Savior and something about ourselves that the Spirit of God would have us to know. We have something to learn of our master and something to learn of ourselves from each one of the rebukes. Something else that you're going to see as I read through the text, displayed dramatically in in one small uh, paragraph, we see both the humanity and the divinity of Christ powerfully on display. You know, and I think about this, This is not in my notes. It's just kind of coming to mind. We were talking about this at the dinner table last night. In this particular season, coming up in the Advent season and coming up upon Christmas, and there's much talk, and and there ought to be, about the incarnation. But unfortunately, much of that emphasis is on baby Jesus and just his humanity. And, And almost to the entire neglect, sometimes, of the deity of Christ clothed in human flesh, certainly, but divine, truly God. And so, as we read through the text, don't miss that. We see both the humanity and the divinity of Christ on display. So, again, those three rebukes, we see, first of all, the disciples rebuke their master. Then, secondly, we see Jesus rebuking the storm. And then, lastly, Jesus rebukes his disciples. So let's read together the Word of God, beginning in verse 35, and take note of those things as I read, those three rebukes, but also take note of the divinity and the humanity of your Savior. Here is the Word of God. On that day, when evening had come, 
he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Notice, first of all, I mean, here's this storm that comes up suddenly. And notice how the disciples, on the occasion of this storm, have the gall, if you will, the temerity, the audacity to rebuke their master. And it's unique to Mark's account. In in both Matthew and Luke, we're told simply that they woke him and said, Help us, we're perishing. But Mark records, and I think this is interesting, I can't, I can't prove this, but I think this is part of the recollection of Peter, uniquely in the background of Mark, recalling his own heart, recalling his own motives at the time. And they wake Jesus up, and they make this accusation to him. Do you care? Do you not care that we're perishing? Now, something that's important that, that I think is, a, is, a, is, a, is an important detail that Mark gives to us is in verse 35, on that day when evening came. What day? Well, the same day that we've been considering over the last several sermons. The same day on which Jesus has been teaching all day long. The same day on which we're told he taught nothing that wasn't in parables the very same day on which his disciples came to him privately, and he explained to them the mystery of the kingdom, which was he himself. On that very day, the events that we see in the boat take place. The same same day where Jesus brings his disciples aside privately and says, to you and to you only have been revealed the mystery of the kingdom. On that same day, he brings his disciples privately in another circumstance, for another lesson. It also reminds us here of the humanity of our Lord. The fact that it was on that same day reminds us that he's been teaching all day long. According to his humanity, he's exhausted. Physically, emotionally, mentally, it's exhausting. He was truly tired. He's been bearing emotionally the weight of the crowds. He's been grieving their hardness of heart and their unbelief. He's been laboring to explain the Word of God to them, patiently, even with His disciples, explaining to them the deeper mysteries of the kingdom. Look back at verse 10, when He says, when He was alone, those around Him with the twelve asked Him about the parable. And He says, to you it's been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. And then in verse 13, he says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the other parables? And see, take note of the humanity of our Savior. He was exhausted at this point. 
You know, I was speaking to a pastor friend of mine just recently. He called me about something. It was on a Monday, and we were, it was late in the morning on a Monday, and we both were talking about how, how exhausted we are. And he said, yeah, I don't even set an alarm on Monday mornings. I allow my, my body to rest, and, and I'm just in slow motion for the first half of the day. And, and I, can, I can relate to that. There's, there's, a, there's a physical and a mental exhaustion with, with teaching, especially teaching all day, that's hard to describe. And Jesus is now asleep. He gets in the boat. The sea wasn't rough. There was no storm when they started out. And he lays down his head, and he sleeps. Now, the Sea of Galilee had some unique geographical and topographical features the, the, the Sea of Galilee is almost 700 feet below the level of the, the Mediterranean Sea. So it's significantly, hundreds of feet below sea level. There are steep cliffs that surround most of the lake. It's 16 or 17 miles long and on average about 5 or 6 miles in width. And they were endeavoring to sail over to the other side. But one of the things that happens as the cool air rushes down and you have this, these atmospheric conditions that can produce very rapid development of storms. And that's what happens. They're out on the boat. It's a small fishing vessel. And the sudden and violent storm arises. And what's happening here is I think we have to understand that the disciples are not exaggerating the circumstances. And, and we've, we've seen that before. We understand how that can happen. Even in our own estimation of our problem, we can, we can grossly overestimate how serious a situation is, Right? That's not what's happening here. These were seasoned fishermen. A little bit of rough water didn't frighten them. A few blusters in the wind didn't rattle them. These were seasoned men, skilled men. The problem was not that they didn't understand or perceive their peril accurately. The problem is twofold. The problem is twofold. First, they underestimated the rescuing power of their Redeemer. They underestimated the power of the man who slept at the back of the boat. They underestimated him. They failed to comprehend him correctly as not just the man at the back of the boat, but the Son of God. And they failed in that respect. But also, here's the other problem they had, and it's revealed in their accusation. They questioned his goodness and care for them. They question his goodness and care for them. And I think that's particularly troublesome when we think about the day that they've already had with him, where he's revealed to them secrets that no one else knows. He, he's, he's let them peek behind the veil of the mysteries of the kingdom and shown himself in ways that others didn't see. And, and I wonder, I can't prove this, is this somewhat of, of Peter's autobiographical insertion here? They were making accusations against their Lord. So they had not merely asserted that he didn't understand their situation. They didn't merely, you know, gently tap his shoulder and say, you may not realize this, teacher, but we're in a bit of a, of a dilemma here. We're in danger here. That wasn't what happened. They arrested him from sleep and said, do you not care that we're perishing? They accuse him of not caring about them. And again, the paragraph I read just a few moments ago, beginning in verse 10. He had very patiently, kindly, gently, 
privately instructed them, drawing near to them in ways that he was not with the rest of the crowd. But saints, the accusation that we see from the disciples here, I think mirrors the original lie that the serpent told in the garden to Eve. Does it not? He insinuated, is God really good? I mean, I know he's given you every tree in the garden, but of this one tree, he's withholding that from you, the tree that can make you good and wise and knowledgeable. And he's withholding that. He's insinuating that God is, is withholding some good from you. And does this pattern not repeat itself at times in your own heart? Do you not sometimes question whether God truly cares? When you're faced with afflictions, with troubles, with sorrows, with loss, are you not tempted in the same way to think, God, are you paying attention? Do you not care that this is going on? When problems arise, when crises come, we are, when we are anxious, when we are afraid, we tend to fall into this very same two-tiered trap. We question and we forget the power of our God. And we question and we forget the goodness of our God. Isn't that true? Don't we fall into the very same twofold trap? But our Lord Jesus intends good lessons for us in the storms of life. He intended a good lesson for his disciples. And, and the event ought to remind us that as followers of Christ, as disciples of Christ, we are not exempt in this life from trouble. The disciples were not exempt from a storm on the sea just because they were with Jesus. And we are not exempt from trouble. Being in Christ does not shield us from hardship, it does, from sorrow, from fear, from anxiety. We should not be surprised when we face loss, sickness, affliction of all kinds. And do you know what? The Lord loved his disciples too much not to let them go through this storm. And he loves us, he loves you far too much not to allow us to experience affliction. May we confess along with the psalmist, it's good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. Psalm 119. May the Spirit of the living God give us grace so that we do not rebuke him in our hearts that we do not accuse our God of, one, not being powerful enough to save us, or two, even worse, not being good enough, not caring enough to rescue us from perishing. But there are two more rebukes that come. The first one is the rebuke of the disciples to their master. He was asleep on the stern of the ship, at the back of the ship, and they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care? that we are perishing. Here's the second rebuke in verse 39. And Jesus awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, be still, peace. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. See, the text reveals to us in a striking manner, again, both the deity and the humanity of our Lord Jesus. Here he was asleep, exhausted in the boat, and yet it is his voice alone that rebukes and commands the waves and the wind to cease. Jesus rebukes the wind, he rebukes the waves, and immediately, immediately all is calm. Now, 
There are natural, we talked about in Sunday school this morning, the doctrine of providence and the, and the nature of second causes. And there's a second cause here. God is the first cause of the storm, but the second cause is the topography, the environmental conditions around the Sea of Galilee that causes storms to, to arise suddenly and naturally. But there is no natural cause for a storm to cease like this and immediately be calm. There's no natural explanation for that. Ordinarily, even once a storm has passed, the waves remain high for quite some time. We can even observe this in, in smaller, more ordinary ways. If you went out to Lake Conroe today and watched somebody go by on a boat, it's going to leave waves and a wake behind it. You know what? You can observe the, the trail, as, as it were, the waves rippling for quite some time after the boat has passed. If you go down to the Houston Ship Channel, you see a much larger scale, the big boats. The same kind of things. The waves are bigger and they last longer. They don't immediately cease just because the boat has passed. But what we're told in the text, he awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Seasoned sailors know this doesn't happen. Things don't immediately go back to normal, even after the storm has passed. And they cry out. Mark records for us, they were filled with great fear, and they said to one another, who then is this? That in even the wind and the sea obey him. Now, the disciples had already witnessed Jesus performing all manner of miracles, hadn't they? I mean, we, kind of along through the pages of Mark, have, have witnessed these things. We've seen him heal a leper, a paralytic, a man with a withered hand. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal all manner of sicknesses and, and disease. But throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, something striking is observed with respect to natural forces, that only God, only God, controls natural forces. Some men might heal. Prophet Elijah, for example, God had given opportunity to do that. But it was widely believed, widely known, that only God controlled natural forces. And so we've already seen in the event this, the humanity of Jesus, but let, also, let us observe his full deity. Jesus is truly God from the very, very first verse of Mark's gospel. If you turn back to chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is eager, eager to affect our minds and convince us that Jesus is the true and living God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God incarnate. He is not merely a man. He is not merely a healer. He is not merely an extraordinary teacher. He is God. The same God who spoke the wind and waves into existence more than 4,000 years earlier is now the same God who commands them. This is the same God who said these words to Job, who should shut the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you come and no farther. 
and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Jesus is the same God. He's the same God about whom the psalmist spoke in Psalm 93. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. This is the same God about whom the psalmist said in Psalm 89, O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. When its waves rise, you still them. See, these weren't new images to God's people. These disciples, good Jewish men who knew their scriptures, would immediately have been astounded because only God can calm the seas. In Psalm 65, the psalmist declares, By awesome deeds your answer, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. This is the God who spoke from the boat and calmed the waves and the sea and the wind. This is the same God confessed by the church throughout the centuries. In the Nicene Creed, we confess the following, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Saints, behold your Redeemer. Behold your Savior, who is God. Behold the one who speaks, and all storms cease immediately. Behold the Lord Jesus, who is the Son of God. See, the disciples were not quite grasping that yet. The dawn was coming. A little bit of light was beginning to flicker on the horizon of their, of their hearts and their minds, but they, they didn't quite grasp all of this yet. It is the disciples who rebuke Jesus, but Jesus, as God, rebukes the storm. Saints, how easy is it for us to forget that Jesus is God? that there is nothing beyond his power, that he rules, that he reigns, that he governs, that he controls all things from the least to the greatest. There is no sin in you. There is no sin around you. There is no affliction. There is no illness. There is no circumstance in which God does not rule in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet there is one more rebuke. There's one more rebuke in the text. After declaring to the sea and commanding the sea, peace be still. And after the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And can you imagine, put yourself 
for a moment. Use your sanctified imagination. You've just been through something, even as a seasoned fisherman, which just rattled you to your core. You're afraid for your life. The, the water's coming up over into the boat. The boat's in real legitimate danger of sinking. And then all of a sudden, it's quiet. There's an eerie kind of quiet. We in Houston understand hurricanes. And, and when, when that eye passes over, all the fury of the storm, and then there's that wall on the inside where everything's gone quiet. But it's an, it's an eerie quiet because you know it's not the end. It's not over yet. But here the Lord had pronounced, he had, he had commanded the sea to cease. He had commanded the wind, in a sense, shut up. And it did. And now imagine the eerie calm and how loud our, word, our Lord's even whisper would have rocketed across the bow of that boat when he turned to his men and said, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Again, Mark's reminder to us is that all these events happen the same day. And this is important. Here on this very day, probably just hours before, the Lord had taken them kindly and gently into his bosom and privately entertained their questions and answered them patiently, revealing himself to them by his words. He'd already done so by his miracles and his actions and his teaching. He has revealed himself to them. And I confess something to you, and this is something that just dawned on me this morning. I'm sitting in my study, going over my notes and looking at this, and, and it, it just occurred to me, and you may think, my pastor's not too bright. This should have occurred to him much sooner. But the paragraph beginning in verse 10 and the paragraph beginning in verse 35, both are two occasions when the Lord in his kindness brought his disciples near to him in private to reveal to them something awesome about himself. And one of them I rejoice about and the other one I despise. The privilege, the thought of the Lord's going to come and talk to me privately and he's going to share something with me. That's awesome. That's great. The next one, you're going to battle for your life and fear for your life, but he's going to show you something no less important about himself. I don't want that one. Do I have anybody else who shares the same sentiment? But do you see how the events are connected? And I didn't see that till just this morning. And, and this is the most convicting insight to me, I think, of the whole passage, this whole chapter, is that both these sections describe circumstances in which the Lord reveals something intimate about himself. And one of his methods I really enjoy. The other method I want to run from. I'm persuaded that this fact... That, that reality about our humanity is, is one of the reasons for Jesus' rebuke of his disciples. I think that's one of the reasons. He very kindly, very gently, very patiently says to them, why are you afraid? 
I did this for your good. I had my head on a cushion so content that I could sleep because I knew perfectly how all this would work out. You were never in danger. Why are you afraid? And isn't this true in the midst of our affliction? Isn't this the case in the midst of our sorrows, in the midst of our fears and our anxieties? We can't see the unique privilege that we have of drawing near to God in the midst of that. We can't see it. Or worse, we despise it. And so here, I think the, the, the rebuke that the Lord gives to his disciples is not the angry rebuke of a tyrant. This is the gentle, patient, kind rebuke of a friend, an older brother who comes to them and says, why are you responding this way? Why is your faith not allowing you to see who I am and what I'm doing in your midst. And the question comes to me from the text, and it comes to you as well. How, how do you receive rebukes from the Lord? How do you receive it? Whether it's his verbal rebuke through his word, or whether it's the chastisement of a circumstance. How do you receive that? Do you receive the chastisement of the Lord as something good for you? Do you think it's utterly crazy talk for James to say, count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing produces perseverance? Let perseverance have its complete work, that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Let's take it a step further. What, what about when the rebuke comes in a sense, secondhand. When it's a faithful brother or sister who comes to you and says, can I speak to you about something? I'm seeing something in you. I'm seeing a speech or an attitude or an action in you that is inconsistent with the Word of God. How do you handle that rebuke? How do you handle that admonishment? Could the Lord say to you in that circumstance, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid to humble yourself and say the really hard words to say, I was wrong. Forgive me. Why are you afraid? Why is that hard? Have you still no faith? Do you believe that all your sins are pardoned and cleansed? Or don't you? Or do we have to say we show up with our own little defense attorney card See, I'm here to plead on behalf of David. I'm representing him today, and I'm about to make his defense. Why are you still afraid? Have you, little, have you so little faith? Young people, when you receive rebukes from your parents, do you receive those as rebukes from a godly mother and father who desires good for you? not your harm, who desires to instruct you and encourage you and exhort you? Or do you assume this is bad for me? There's another very important lesson from the text 
And it, and it comes from our Lord's question. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? See, Jesus recognizes something here that the disciples were not yet grasping, and they needed to grasp, and we need to grasp. It is not the quantity or the intensity of our faith that saves us. It is the genuineness of it. It is not the intensity of your faith. It is not the quality of your faith. It is not the measure of your faith. It is not a sufficient amount of your faith that saves you. It is the genuineness of it. And Jesus recognizes here a problem with his brothers. He recognizes it's not that they've exaggerated the danger that they were in. It's not that they've overstated the peril of their circumstances. The, the, the problem is they fail to believe who he is. So this is not the rebuke of an enemy. This is not the rebuke of one who, who hates these men. This is the rebuke of one who loves his brothers and desires their, their, ultimately, their ultimate good, which can only be found through faith in him. Their ultimate good can only be found there. His infinite wisdom and goodness. And according to that infinite wisdom and goodness, sometimes the only way for us to learn about that is to have our faith tested, to be put through the trial be afflicted. So saints, don't walk away from the sermon today thinking, here's, here's the takeaway. I need to increase the quantity of my faith. I need to increase the intensity of my faith. That may be true, but that's not the admonition from the text. The disciples were not saved according to the strength or the intensity of their faith, and neither are you or me. We're saved according to the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we believe He truly is the Son of God? Do we believe that He truly intends to rescue us from perishing? J.C. Ryle says this eloquently. He says, let us leave these verses with the comfortable recollection that Jesus has not changed his heart is still the same as it was when he crossed the Sea of Galilee and stilled the storm. High in heaven, at the right hand of God, Jesus is still sympathizing, still almighty, still piteous and patient towards his people. Let us be more charitable and patient towards our brethren in the faith. They may err in many things, but if Jesus has received them and can bear with them, Surely we can bear with them too. Let us be more hopeful about ourselves. We may be very weak and frail and unstable. But if we can truly say that we have come to Christ and believe on him, we may take comfort. The question for conscience to answer is not, are we like the angels? Are we perfect as we shall be in heaven? The question is, are we real and true in our approaches to Christ? Do we truly repent and believe? See, there's a temptation here, even in the text, for us to find a, a, a despair here among the disciples that isn't there and take that as our own and say, oh my, I don't have enough faith for God to be pleased with me. 
I don't have a sufficient measure of faith to survive the storms of life. But that isn't the lesson of the text. The lesson of the text is that Jesus is the one who demonstrates a perfect trust and contentment and rest, and that by faith, his perfection is yours. See, there will be plenty of times. There'll be plenty of times in every one of your lives, in my life, when my faith will falter, when I will be afraid, when I will forget the goodness of God, when I will forget the power of the living God. And on that day, not if, but when that happens, I don't despair because the, 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 the meter of my faith has diminished and now I'm in danger of perishing. My certainty is in the fact that I am justified by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. The fact that he rested in the boat shows his humanity, certainly, but you know what it also shows? His complete, perfect trust in his heavenly Father. Not once, not for a second, did he ever deviate. Not once for a second did he ever doubt. Not once for a second did his faith ever fail. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, his righteousness is yours. His perfection is yours by faith. It's the important side of the gospel coin that's often overlooked. Almost all will confess, surely, that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, our sins are pardoned. And that is true. Amen. But it is also true that the righteousness of Christ is ours by faith. So don't look at the weakness of the apostles' faith, the disciples' faith, and say, that's the definitive thing in the story. Look at the perfection of Christ, the God-man who lived perfectly and obediently because you couldn't and you wouldn't. And his righteousness is yours. If you are in Christ, the perfect measure of his trust, of his faithfulness, of his perfection, of his confidence in his Father, all of that is yours. All of his power and goodness is credited to you by faith. See, if, if you are not in Christ, the very opposite is true. All of your sins, from the least to the greatest, are being counted up. They're being measured. And there will be a reckoning for that. One day you will stand before God and you will give an account for every loose word that you said, for every vile thought, for every evil deed. No one will escape that. The only escape is to be found in Christ by faith. To believe that he is the son of God. That the one who declared to the wind and the wave to shut up is the same one who can say this one is forgiven. This one belongs to me. This one is perfect in my sight because of my blood, because of my righteousness. So I'll present the final, the closing question to you. What have you learned from each of the three rebukes? What do you learn? 
as you think about and meditate upon the disciples' rebuke of their masters, you go home today and you meditate upon that. That the disciples woke their master and didn't just plead for his help, but they rebuked him. They accused him of not caring for them. What do you learn from that, saints? What do you learn about yourself? Then we see that Jesus rebukes the storm. What do you learn about him? What do you learn about your need? as you meditate upon the fact that Jesus is the true Son of God, truly man and truly God, who at the mere sound of his voice, the waves and the wind cease, immediately goes calm. What do you learn about him? What do you learn about your own need? What do you learn as Jesus turns afterwards in the midst of the calm and, and probably just with a low voice is able to speak to his disciples and say, why are you afraid? Why do you have such a little faith? What do you learn about yourself? But more importantly, what do you learn about the patience and the kindness and the gentleness of your Savior as you consider even the gentleness of his rebuke? May the Lord help us to see him and to see ourselves clearly. Let's pray together. Father and our God, we are grateful that you have made yourself known through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that the scriptures are plain to us that he is truly man bearing our the weaknesses of our human flesh and yet without sin and yet he is able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses that he is the perfect great high priest having learned obedience himself as a son And at the same time, in a way that's incomprehensible to us, He is truly God, the eternal second person of the Trinity. Light of light, God of God, very God of very God, who clothed Himself in our flesh, walked among us, and that You caused Him through the hands of sinful men, to be crucified, offered up as a perfect, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. We thank you that he is now raised from the grave, exalted, given a name above every name. And I pray that you will grant to us the grace to bow eagerly and willingly before him resting and trusting in both his power and his goodness. Help us to see him clearly and plainly from your word. We ask this in his name. Amen.